More questions than answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. It is my absolute pleasure to be chatting today with Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough is a board certified specialist in internal medicine and cardiovascular diseases, focusing on the interface of heart and kidney disease. He has an MD from the University of Texas and completed his internal medicine residency at the University of Washington. He also has a master's degree in public health from the University of Michigan and is a full professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine in Dallas. Dr. McCullough is one of the top five most published medical researchers with papers in more than a thousand publications, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, Lancet, and the British Medical Journal. He is also the editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine and senior associate editor of the American Journal of Cardiology. Dr. McCullough has been an invited lecturer at the New York Academy of Sciences, the National Institutes of Health, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and the European Medicines Agency. On November 19, 2020, Dr. McCullough testified in the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs concerning early ambulatory treatment of high-risk patients with COVID-19. Dr. McCullough is a COVID-19 survivor himself and welcomes post-COVID-19 patients into his practice. I am so deeply honored that you have come to chat with me today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. McCullough. Thank you. I have to give one correction to the um, bio sketch. <laughs> and I, I'm always uh, in fear and trepidation when I listen to someone read this because of the litigious nature of uh, where we are right now. But I've been stripped of my professorship at Texas A&M after a decade of perfect performance uh, without any uh, due process, without any faculty senate, without any uh, courtesy phone call. So I've been stripped of my professorship at Texas A&M, and then I followed, I've been followed with a legal threat letter against me if it's ever used or mentioned that I am a professor of medicine at Texas A&M. Just to, just to let you know that the environment that we're navigating in, I, and I know you personally are very familiar with this. So I am. Well, why don't we start there? I wasn't planning on it, but I didn't know that. I didn't, I, I saw you had given a speech to uh, is it the American Association? Is it AAPS? I forget now. And you had said in that speech, and I'm not sure when it was, but that you were anticipating losing some of your credentials. Um, and so that has in fact happened now. What, what does that make you think about, I mean, not just the culture of medicine, because you're a medical specialist, I'm not, but not just the culture of medicine, but about where our universities are at now that are supposed to be these you know, these arenas for free and open thought and debate and dialogue. And also, you know, the institutions that have processes and they have rules and they have charters. So, you know, if one's a professor of medicine, uh, it takes actually quite an effort to climb that ladder to become professor of medicine. And if one is ever to lose that status, there is a due process. There is a due process. Uh, one would uh, let's say there was an act of moral turpitude, or there was a loss of a medical license, or something along these lines, <clears throat> some type of uh, problem between a faculty and student uh, uh, harassment complaint, or something like that. And someone, uh, you know, there, there would actually be uh, faculty senate proceedings, there would be phone calls, there would be documents, you know, charges, and then responses. Mm -hmm. um, it would be something, there wouldn't just be a letter. Uh, a one sentence letter saying you're hereby stripped of your professorship <clears throat> at the university. Uh, but that's where we have arrived at right now. COVID-19 has been like a cloud. It's been a cloud that has settled down on our universities and they're not, they're not actually processing things normally now. Well, you can imagine that, that act of due process, all that sets the university up, which is a deep pocket. All it sets them up for is legal proceedings against them. So all they're doing is opening themselves up to liability. Normally, universities are very risk averse. Mm -hmm. Why would they do something? Why wouldn't they have a phone call uh, regarding uh, you know, some issue of uh, a complaint? Why wouldn't they have a faculty senate hearing? Uh, why wouldn't they go through due process? Well, why would they put themselves so to risk? Yeah, why do you think that is? I mean, you're right, it would be fairly simple. I agree with you that, um, I mean, I've been involved with medical ethics for a while and uh, the, administra uh, you know, the administrative 
side of academia on occasion. And if anything, that kind of due process is labored and tedious and exhausting and endless. And now I think, as you point out, we're just seeing that dismissed entirely. Why do you think that is across the board, not just in medicine and government, <coughs> in, in universities as well? I think we'll only find out through discovery. So, uh, you know, in action against Texas A&M, for instance, uh, you know, one of the first things I'd be interested in is discovery. Uh, show me all the emails where Dr. McCullough showed up in the emails. Mm -hmm. Wait, what, what precipitated this? Who, who got, what, what got into the minds of someone to actually do this? And I, I think discovery is gonna tell a lot. Uh, were there uh, email connections from outside institutions, federal government, uh, vaccine stakeholders, uh, those working to suppress early treatment? Uh, were there complaints from other faculty members? Uh, where did all this come from? Uh, it's, it's very mysterious, yeah, these, these almost kind of surgical strikes. So I've had that from Texas A&M. I've had the same from uh, University of North Texas, Texas Christian University. That's a, a medical school that barely got off the ground. They highly recruited me to be faculty. They wanted my name. At both institutions, by the way, I'm the most published person, the most notable person at those uh, institutions. And um, uh, I've received a threat letter from American College of Physicians, of which I've been a member now for 40 years and a fellow, uh, saying that uh, while I had not violated their behavior policy, they're watching that very uh, closely. Mm -hmm. um, I subsequently just didn't renew with the American College of Physicians. I didn't pay their fees. And I asked them for a letter uh, indicating that I'm no longer under their, their watch because I'm not a member of that organization. I uh, received a, uh, a notice from uh, Carger Publications, a Swiss journal, that I was summarily dismissed as editor-in-chief of cardiorenal medicine. And that was after nearly a decade of perfect service. I had, I had uh, caused an elevation in the impact factor of the journals, a wildly popular journal now, very, very high quality, ran the, uh, the um, editorial office like a top, uh, every day made editorial decisions, you know, just a one sentence letter, you're hereby released of uh, being uh, the editor of cardiorenal medicine. Now, in that one, they <coughs> found an excuse. They said, oh, we realize you're an editor of another journal and we think that violates uh, some part of your contract. So you're hereby dismissed. You know, no courtesy phone call, uh, nothing else. I got a surprise phone call from one of the associate editors who was shocked. Um, uh, so that events uh, happened. I've been stripped off a committee by the American College of Cardiology, uh, just a writing group on a paper of which I wrote a substantial amount of, it's a collaborative paper. Uh, and the, the discussion is there is they, they said, well, we found a conflict of interest here, not disclosing what it is, and you're hereby dismissed from that committee. I was stripped by the National Institutes of Health off uh, an oversight panel for the chronic renal insufficiency cohort study, the longest running cohort study in chronic kidney disease of which I've actually been at times the chairman of that committee. I was stripped off that committee again with a, with a comment about conflict of interest and there was no new conflict of interest that I've had. Uh, so the, these have come in, I mean, multiple examples, uh, they've come in. The only commonality to it is that, uh, that, that there's no due process, there's no courtesy phone call, there seems to be shock among everyone else. And, um, uh, and I think it's really worrisome. You mentioned something earlier about, you know, where we've gotten to. How do you think we've gotten to this place? We seem to be in a place where it's about division and ostracization and no due process, as you say, people being summarily dismissed, shut out. There seems to be a culture of silence everywhere. It's not just within medicine, right? It's everywhere. Uh, our deputy prime minister, or our premier in Ontario yesterday, who's also our minister of health, uh, she basically scolded our College of Physicians and Surgeons for not keeping physicians who challenge the COVID narrative, for not keeping them in line and, and, and scolding them and making sure that they discipline them. I mean, how did this doesn't just come out of a vacuum, right? I mean, how did we get to this place? What do you think the last, what's been going on over the last few years, over the last decade or two get decades that have gotten us here? Honestly, I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. I, life was pretty good. I, you know, <laughs> I, I worked in a, a big uh, medical group, uh, academically oriented position, thriving practice, had an independently funded research group, uh, you know, funded PhDs and, and others, <clears throat> editor of two major journals, 
was the inaugural editor of the textbook Cardiorenal Medicine, president of the Cardiorenal Society of America. As you pointed out, traveled the world. I was the endowed lecturer at Harvard two years ago. I didn't see this coming, uh, but when COVID-19 hit, something fundamentally changed. There was a cloud of fear that settled down over these organizations. There appeared to be now new sets of powers that were installed. Uh, there, there was, in a sense, a narrative created. And, and when that narrative was created, uh, you, you know, there was no opportunity for discussion. We've never had an open forum to discuss COVID-19. You know, in my field in cardiology, we have what's called Bethesda meetings. We get calls to Bethesda, Maryland, and we have uh, FDA, uh, NIH, uh, industry, private doctors, and we, you know, have an agenda and we present, you know, what we think is a solution to an unmet need. We've never had this. We've never had any uh, open discussion on how to tackle the pandemic. It's been a top-down approach. Uh, it's been a complete disaster. All the public health responses have basically, and, and, and basically by every metric have backfired. And uh, there seems to be a backlash against uh, physicians at this point in time, other scientists. What, what do you think about yesterday's announcement from Boris Johnson that he was going to end <coughs> the plan B COVID measures, including face masks and COVID passes effective January 26th? What, what, do, you, what do you think that's about? Is that good news? Should we take that as good news? It's hard to know. It, it, on its face, it looked like capitulation. Right, so England has just come through the Omicron outbreak. The Omicron outbreak was twice as tall and involved twice as many people than all the prior outbreaks. Uh, the Omicron outbreak is in a sense the, the prima facie evidence of failure of all these pandemic uh, control measures, including masks, social distancing, vaccines, passports, uh, et cetera. Uh, and it was clear Omicron broke through natural as well as vaccine immunity. So on its surface, it looks like capitulation. They're just, in a sense, throwing in the towel. There's a parallel story coming out of the European Union and the European medicine agencies, as well as World Health Organization, uh, basically stating that vaccine boosters are futile. And we should look towards other measures, whether there be new vaccines in the future. Uh, the vaccine manufacturers have basically come out, Pfizer, Moderna have come out and said, listen, uh, it looks like the current boosters are futile. We're, you know, we're going to come up with a new vaccine for Omicron. And, in March, while the Omicron outbreaks are very tall, but very narrow, you know, Britain, Germany, Denmark, South Africa, they're already through them. United States, we estimate there's another two weeks and we're going to be done with Omicron. So I don't know what new vaccines would actually be directed against uh, since the virus is mutating so rapidly. So, uh, you know, I just filed the McCullough report today and, and uh, you know, the title of it, as I said, you know, are these cracks in the, in the, the ivory tower of public health uh, you know, pandemic response? Or is this just choreography? Is this just a little give and take? And are we gonna hear about some new draconian measure next hammer week? Hammer coming down harder. Yeah, the hammer coming down in some way. So uh, it's, it's hard to know. We're gonna have to see. I've been called on national TV tonight. I'll be on Fox News, Laura Ingram, the Ingram Angle. And I imagine this is gonna come up is, you know, how do you read this? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it could be the first signs of capitulation uh, you know, by the way, when both of these stories came out, you know, the first thing I did is I messaged people in the UK and in, and in the EU of saying, is this legit? Is this actually yeah. happening? <laughs> or, or is this, uh, you know, not a falsified report? So. And then, of course, it gets spun as it comes out. And, and, and some of the journalists are saying, well, the only reason <coughs> they're able to give up Plan B is because their pandemic measures were so successful, right? Um, it's interesting to me, I mean, what you're talking about, you know, are there cracks in the ivory tower? These are all questions about what the people who are sort of controlling the measures, what's going on there. But an interestingly, equally interesting, if not more interesting question to me is what's going on in the minds of the average person. And it seems like it's becoming so so clear, I think, to people like you and I, that these pandemic measures are not, they're not working, the vaccines are not effective, they're not, uh, you know, they're not effective, they're not safe. But what do you think charitably, I mean, this is evidence that's been a slow burn. This was true weeks ago, not months ago, you know, we saw uh, the lead up to this, I think, but charitably, what do you think is going on in the mind of the person who thought until recently and maybe still thinks that the pandemic response is working, that we can hit COVID zero, that we can vaccinate our way out of this, that we can lock down our way out of this. You know, there's no signs that uh, that people are 
really adhering uh, and, and um, you know, <coughs> understanding this narrative to be true. Uh, you know, we just finished the first round of NFL playoffs. Football is a big deal. In I, the United States. <laughs> I, I went to I went to one of the games. We had 100,000 people in the stadium uh, in, in Texas. And I can tell you, I saw one or two people wearing masks. So oh. I was thinking to myself, here we are in the largest outbreak. We have twice as much COVID than we've ever had before. And people are sitting shoulder to shoulder in a football game. They're not worried. And honestly, they could care less. So, uh, you know, and, and, and this is an indoor stadium. There's, you know, but indoor. That's not because they're all vaccinated and they feel immune. And, and well, well uh, you know, we, we have a certainly uh, our CDC says 146 million people like me have already had COVID. So maybe a lot of us just honestly don't feel like, you know, we're at too much of a risk out there. We can get Omicron, but it's very brief, mild. I had it myself. Honestly, I think it was an hour or two of a mild fever. Um, and uh, on, on top of that, we've had 200 million people take the vaccines. So maybe people feel like, listen, they've done everything they can. I just think that those who take the vaccines are almost to a one disappointed when they get COVID. And the December 10th CDC report was was right. They were telling us at that point in time, it was over 70 percent of Omicron cases are in the fully vaccinated. Germany had a report. It was over 90 percent. So, you know, as all these vaccinated people get Omicron, you know, I think there is a disappointment. I think they feel like they've been duped that, you know, they took the risk of these vaccines. They may not have understood how risky they were to begin with. But the whole goal was to not get COVID. And sure enough, they get COVID anyway. And so, you know, these calls come into my phone all day long. And then I can just tell by the interchange that they're kind of disappointed that they, they took the vaccine. They were, they kind of, they, they bought into the idea and they obviously got COVID anyway. Like, what's the big deal? It's really interesting because I also see, uh, especially on social media, especially among women, uh, them saying things lately like, I just tested positive for COVID, my whole family just tested positive, thank goodness we got vaccinated. And that there's an odd logic to that in my mind, charitably, I think the only interpretation can be, well, I would have been much worse off if I didn't. But then if you were to ask them, well, what evidence do you have for that? I haven't seen any that's, that's forthcoming, you know, so there's an odd psychology. They, um, the explanation you propose, which is people are starting to feel like, well, I've done everything I can do, you know, sort of come what may, and uh, I just have to trust that it's going to work. That's sort of an interesting trust question. And then the people I'm, I'm talking about seem to have an odd logic in terms of their thinking about immunity and how immunity works. And there's been so much that's been written about and talked about the psychology and the mass psychology, you know, of course, Dr. Malone's been talking recently about mass psychosis. Do you think, I, I know this isn't your area of specialization, but maybe we could talk about fear for a minute. And as a, a, a philosopher, um, we're interested in, uh, you know, how fear can affect our decision-making and our capacity for critical thinking and things like that. Do you think there's been a change in, is the patients you see or in your colleagues or just people in society in terms of how fearful we are? Are we just... Are, are we experiencing unprecedented levels of fear? Um, and is that affecting people's decision-making, do you think? Yeah, I, I think we are facing unprecedented levels of fear. And I think in the first year of the pandemic, it was really fear of the respiratory virus itself. And, and rightly so. I mean, uh, they saw people saw loved ones hospitalized. Sadly, they've seen loved ones die. Um, but in the second year of the pandemic, it's really turned into fear of the vaccines. Uh, people are very fearful of these vaccines. Mm. Uh, the, the rates of, you know, once the word got out that people were dying after mass vaccination, this in the United States, uh, you know, it started to occur. Uh, we, we saw the earliest signal back in January. Hardly anybody could see it then. Uh, mm. But it was clear by, by March, I think we already had 1,600 people who died shortly after the vaccine. You know, people were talking. And, uh, and Americans figured out that you could take the vaccine and die. They saw loved ones die. And so rates of vaccination in the United States plummeted in April, plummeted. Nobody wanted these vaccines. And then we started to see these inducements of, you know, have a beer, have a donut, get a free hot dog, get an ice cream, get, get a million dollar raffle if you take the vaccine, get a free college scholarship. No one would take the vaccines. In Europe, a free trip to a brothel for a man still wouldn't do it. So basically, people didn't want the vaccine since April. No one's wanted these. 
And so what happened is then the mandates came in and the mandates have really created fear. You know what people are fearful of? They're fearful of losing their job. They're fearful of economic depravity. Uh, they're fearful of uh, the repercussions of what's gonna happen uh, to the course of their life if they don't take one of these vaccines, which they don't wanna take. So you can imagine the fear of, there's fear of dying with the vaccine or being permanently injured or disabled. And then there's the fear of losing their job if you don't take the vaccine. So it's a double-edged fear. That's actually worse than fear of the virus itself. I don't think we quite have that um, sort of a groundswell of fear of the vaccines here in Canada, or especially not in Ontario. We're, we're lagging behind you in that. And that's very often the case, how it works with, with Canadians and Americans, especially when it comes to freedom issues, I think, medical freedom issues, especially. Um, so we have not had the same kind of vaccine. And I really hate the term hesitancy, because I think it implies a kind of irrationality. The hesitant person ought not be hesitant, you know, but people who are cautious about the vaccines, we, I don't think we We've had sort of a groundswell of that yet. But one thing that's really interesting to me is that, you know, when you look at medical treatments, uh, surgeries or pharmaceutical interventions or other kinds of therapies, it seems to me that people are fairly willing to be skeptical about how well those things were, will work and whether or not it's possible that they'll be harmful. Um, but when it comes to the vaccines, we have created this little, this may be more true in Canada, but it seems like we've created this little bubble that around them and we can't talk about them. We can't suggest that they could possibly be harmful. I can't tell you what it's like in Canada, uh, either to have this conversation in mainstream media and social media with an academic colleague, with most scientists, with most average people. Um, is if you say, if you raise a question and say, oh, wow, I, I wonder if that could be caused by a vaccine, I wonder, you're just immediately shut down, you're a heretic. Um, why do you think we are so, we find it so unsettling that a vaccine could have a harmful effect when it seemed like, I mean, surgeries can have side effects and harmful effects, right? Why, do we, why are we so protective of vaccines, do you think? I think it's the unprecedented <clears throat> level. <laughs> Remember a drug that has a serious side effect like death, 50 deaths, it's off the market. So we just don't have products on the market that result in large numbers of immediate deaths. In the U.S. now, we have 21,000 people in the CDC VAR system that the CDC has acknowledged have died after vaccination. About half of those are domestic. We have a CMS whistleblower lawsuit in the summertime. By extrapolation, they came up with 45,000 Americans losing their lives after the vaccine. And now this paper uh, from Columbia by Pantazatos and Seligman using census data, as well as vaccine administration data. Now it, it is ecological analysis, but it found that the upper limit, maybe 187,000 Americans have lost their lives after the vaccine. These catastrophic numbers, are in the back of people's minds. And so you're right, when you get into a conversation, a lot of people basically say, listen, I don't wanna talk about it. I don't wanna talk yeah. about it. I mean, there, there, is, there is no discussion. And do you know that Steve Kirsch, who started the Vaccine Injury Treatment Fund, he's invited any academic physician who would come to the table and just talk about this issue in an open forum. He'll pay them $2 million for showing up. Do you know not a single doctor is willing to show up and, and discuss this? Uh, uh, there, it, this is astonishing. This is astonishing psychology. Psychologists are going to write about this for the longest time. So I actually think, I think people know that the vaccines are grossly unsafe. And I think they know that each administration that's like a Russian roulette um, spin, and that uh, in fact, it could be fatal. This injection could be their last injection. These are large numbers very large numbers. You know, we've had reports now out of the insurance industry, the actuaries in the last week, they're reporting a 40% excess mortality ages 18 to 49 in the United States. And that's cataclysmic. Um, and they say it's not, it's not due to COVID-19, the respiratory illness, the actuaries have been clear about this, but it's all caused mortality. You know, I can tell you a 4% rise would have been cataclysmic, but a 40% rise, the only thing that's common to, that's changed is administration of COVID-19 vaccines. So uh, believe me, we just get unsettling report after unsettling report. And it's not just death. We now have over a thousand peer-reviewed publications in the medical literature 
describing vaccine injuries, both fatal and non-fatal. <coughs> so hundreds of cases on myocarditis, on the neurologic syndromes, on the immune syndromes, thrombosis. I mean, it's extraordinary. This is, you know, this is worse than a war. This is, this is bigger than a brand new disease that's come on the market. In many ways, this is worse than COVID-19, the respiratory illness, because there are so many people involved and now they have chronic disease. We are, it seems we are living through or, or we are making history that will be written about for centuries, if not millennia. It's very surreal when you think about that, isn't it? I think many of us often have the thought that our lives are relatively insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Um, but I think now a lot of us think, you know, we are, we are making the decisions that will determine the fate of humanity for a very long time. And many of these decisions are irreversible. I want to ask you a pers personal question and you can feel free to, um, to not answer, but I mean, you are, are thought to be a hero by many people for doing exactly the kind of thing you're doing today, for speaking out and trying to um, encourage people to think about these things and talk about these things and bring to them the knowledge that you have and what you're seeing in the clinical setting and for speaking out. Um, but on the other side, you're, you're also quite hated. And I, I ask you this because a number of people have asked me this question. They've asked, what is it like to be hated? And I wonder how that feels to you. Um, what is it like to be hated? You know, I've never had a phone call or a direct conversation with anybody that's been hateful. Uh, I've never had anybody uh, want to sit down and say, listen, let's have an exchange of views on something. Never. Uh, I had actually a call earlier today with uh, Eastern Europe, and they wanted to go over a fact checker who had meticulously fact checked a three hour interview I had with Joe Rogan which I think is amazing. I'm glad fact checkers are listening that carefully. Uh, <laughs> but um, the fact checker was anonymous, anonymous. Uh, and on each one of the points, the fact checker had no citations. So the fact checker basically had a response of misinformation with no reference. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if they did reference something, they it referenced health impact news. And now the fact checkers have been fact checked by Dan O'Connor, who's the CEO of TrialSite News. And the fact checkers actually trace back to the vaccine stakeholders within a couple of clicks. So this idea of being hated, I think what that is, is I think that's just a counter level of communication from those who are actually promoting the vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, and so <clears throat> that's where that's coming from. So I actually answered each one of the the uh, comments by the anonymous fact checker with even more citations and data, uh, because <laughs> I'm just giving the information. Uh, and like I've done in this interview, I'm just very careful to cite the data. That's the reason why, um, you know, I don't think fact checkers, uh, they certainly don't go very far. I've never had a hateful call because I think if that person really wanted to, 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 you know, you know, make their point, they would read the same paper and likely they are. And, and whether, they're, whether they acknowledge it or not, they're coming up with the same conclusion. Pantazakos and Seligman, uh, you know, I know it's an ecological analysis, but the point is it's a large number. The, so the, the actuary is coming out with 40% excess mortality. It's a large number. <clears throat> in fact, there was a doctor who tried to fact check the death rate in the CDC VAERS uh, and the numbers that I gave out in the Joe Rogan interview. And that fact checker was a young doctor from uh, University of California at San Francisco. And he said, well, Dr. McCullough used the term, used the number 45,000. He should have a prospective uh, peer reviewed study to quote on that. And it's like, well, you know, I was quoting the CMS whistleblower lawsuit, but I'm, you know, I am anchoring that number in a federal document. Uh, and uh, again, you know, these fact checkers are so easily dismissed. Even the junior doctors mm -hmm. who um, who try to who, who try to make a case, uh, they melt away pretty quickly. And and so on the media, it's interesting. Uh, we have in the United States, we have the agency heads. We don't have teams of doctors, by the way. We have just the director of the National Allergy and Immunology Branch, which is you know a division head at the NIH is not a very high position. That doctor's not board certified. Never seen a COVID patient. Um, uh, is kind of grossly unqualified as a medical doctor to opine on treatments or drug safety, et cetera. And then we have the CDC director, also equally unqualified. So, uh, you know, Scott Atlas in his recent book has concluded the people who are basically telling America the COVID narrative, uh, Scott's conclusion, and he worked with them every day, is that they're incompetent, that they don't, 
Uh, and you know, they work for us, they work for me. And I'm a doctor of a senior position in the United States. I'm a pretty good judge of competency. I, I, I don't see any competency in our public health leaders. I think they're grossly incompetent. They certainly couldn't sit around a table with me and, and survive very long in terms of going through the data. If you notice, uh, the public health officials in the United States, and the same is true for Canada, they never quote any data. They actually don't have the citations. It's not clear to me <clears throat> that they even know it. So in the, in the United States, in the media, the, the counter narrative or just people bringing uh, scientific evidence uh, to bear are myself, Scott Atlas, Paul Alexander, both of them, Paul from Canada, um, both were in the White House. Uh, Peter, Dr. Peter Novaro, uh, he was in the White House. Kirk Milhone, a pediatric cardiologist from uh, Hawaii. Steve Smith, a infectious disease critical care doctor from New Jersey. Ray Eskui, a cardiologist from uh, Washington. Harvey Risch, an epidemiologist from Yale. Um, I mean, that's kind of the America's A-team. So when people turn on the TV, they hear what's coming out of the agencies and they wanna hear the dialogue from someone like me. So tonight's my turn. Uh, on Fox News. That's kind of how it goes in America. It's so interesting. You mentioned that you're you're just giving the data. You are the kind of person, and if I reference you, then I am the kind of person who is guilty of spreading misinformation and uh, being unscientific and being against progress. And yet, as I think you quite rightly point out, there are public health officials, our leaders. I mean, our prime minister in Canada, every third or fourth tweet is something like, on Twitter, you know, is something like, uh, vaccines clearly work. They're clearly safe and effective. Get your vaccine. Nowhere in there is there ever any kind of data. So there's this kind of irony at the very least and like hypocrisy uh, where it's the people who are being accused of being unscientific and spreading misinformation who actually have uh, all the data on their side. And even if it was you know, not a matter of that, that data being right or not, um, they're actually offered. Here are some numbers. Here are some graphs to look at. And our government has not been um, equally, equally good at that, equally forthcoming. And, and again, we're kind of back to the question of the psychology of people. How was it possible that for so long, the public was okay with that, right? The public was just all right to say, I'm quite happy to make a life altering decision in the absence of evidence. You know, what's going on um, uh, in our minds that allows us to get to the point where we think that's a good substitute for science. And we're quite happy to learn at the stakes that people who just have a different opinion and rest that opinion on very sound evidence. You know, I was gonna ask you, um, I mean, I think as is the case always, but especially in, in a situation like we've gone through over the past two years where things are changing so much, they're morphing and it seems like, you know, agility of mind is a really important skill to have so that you are uptaking information appropriately and then adjusting your decisions on, on that basis. But has your opinion about anything changed substantially over the last year or two? Is there anything that kind of caught you off guard and where you've thought, oh, I have to rethink that. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe, maybe my opinion about this is different than it was. Well, I, you know, I did, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, have an element of surprise, uh, but I quickly came to the, um, you know, to the understanding that one could get COVID-19 a second time. COVID, uh, Omicron clearly broke through natural immunity. And I was on Joe Rogan December 8th, and, you know, we had very, you know, data. We had over 140 studies showing the immunity from the prior strains was robust, complete, and durable. But by December 10th, the report was out from the CDC. It was obvious that Omicron had broken through natural immunity. So I was the first one to get on national TV and say, listen, it changed, the science changed and I had the citations and I had the, the quotes. So, uh, you know, I, th I think that, you know, part of science is to be adaptable. The first year of the pandemic, I was a regular contributor in the Washington Journal of the Hill. And I correctly anticipated in writing every twist and turn of the pandemic, uh, forecasting that for America. This year, I've started my own radio program, America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. I do the same thing on a weekly basis. Uh, so I'm very actively involved in informing uh, the public. And so, you know, in the Hill, uh, in the summer of 2020, I had a piece out that said the great gamble of the COVID-19 vaccine program. And I laid out why it's a gamble the genetic vaccines, the production of spike protein in the human body, why that would be dangerous, how we're shortcutting all the safety measures, all the observational data. You know, in the clinical trials program, there was no mortality or death benefit 
So you mentioned when someone gets COVID-19 and they've already been fully vaccinated, that it's like there's some type of consolation prize that, ah, I guess I'm so glad I was vaccinated. Uh, you know, the, the clinical trials never never demonstrated that. The, the uh, vaccine hospitalization data that's come out uh, since the public program uh, in, in many ways is not valid. It's, it's not, uh, these aren't adjudicated. Our CDC directors come out, state health directors come out, said 40 to 60% of the hospital, uh, people in the hospital with COVID don't even have COVID, the respiratory illness. We just don't have valid hospitalization data to hang our head on. I mean, my read on this is through the legacy variants, there may have been a very minimal mortality benefit to receiving a vaccine, but we need a large randomized trial to support that, which we which we don't have. Otherwise, the vaccines are approved to just stop the binary occurrence of COVID-19 uh, itself in the community. And they failed at that. You know, you mentioned uh, the messaging and, and I, I wanted to point out that not only do the government agencies say <coughs> the vaccines are safe and effective without giving any data, they just say it almost as a slogan, they're safe and effective. It go, gets worse than that. Uh, do you know what our president of the United States says? He says, get vaccinated. And you're going to have a terrible winter if you don't. Yeah, just get vaccinated. It's almost as like giving a command to a dog. Get vaccinated. Yeah, And that's shame really, on you if you don't. And go and no, sit but, in the corner. But that, that, that is a really a step forward. That's not even saying they're safe and effective. That, that could basically say, listen, you could lose your life, but get vaccinated at his command. Can you imagine that getting vaccinated at the command of a government official, and you're he right. Doesn't know anything about medicine. So, so President Biden came out right before Christmas, and his message to America, especially our seniors, that we are in for a dark, deadly winter for the unvaccinated. Well, you know, I, I came out on America Out Loud Talk Radio. My face was right next to Biden, and said, "Dr. McCullough has a clear message of hope and compassion for Christmas that we can treat COVID nineteen." We can get through this together. We have new treatments available. And I thought it was very important uh, to take the high road when our president is taking the low road. And you know, this uh, intimidation tactic, uh, you know, for the Canadian health officials, um, I would want them to review my license. I would want them to review their license. I, when I went on Tucker Carlson in May, uh, Tucker said, well, are you afraid of people coming after you? I said, I want them to come after me. I want the conversation for the first time. In fact, Texas is a one-party recording state. I would sit down and I would record the entire thing. I would go through every bit of safety data and every citation with these health officials, and I'd record the reaction to it. I can tell you these health officials are so fearful, they haven't come anywhere close to me. This is a giant game of chicken, and they're losing because they, you know, what they don't have is they don't have the medical truth and they are so fearful of the truth. You can see fear in the eyes of Pierre Trudeau and these health ministers in Canada. The I fear a couple of times, so. a couple of times Trudeau has just had an emotional meltdown and you can see he's completely driven by fear. He's fearful of the medical truth. The vaccines are not safe and they don't work. Mm -hmm. So interesting to me, you know, watching you talk with so much uh, conviction and dedication and courage. And we've seen so many people, the majority of people on the other side, just, just go with the flow, just comply, don't question, or they've looked at the evidence and they think that, well, actually, I think this pandemic response is going pretty well. Um, isn't it interesting what makes the difference between people like that? You know, do you think, if you think back on your your upbringing, your parents, I don't know, other things that influence who people become, the kind of character that we get. What's the difference, do you think? What makes you the way you are um, and other people the way Trudeau is? Or, um, you know, people who are just compliant and happy to go with the flow. What makes that difference, do you think? These characteristics of, of who, who, who sees things clearly, who's willing to state things clearly, who's potentially willing to take risks and who isn't. Uh, you know, th these actually divide families, uh, that, that many times families are not united along these lines. You know, one analogy to think of is, uh, let's say you had a foreign invader coming down the street and they are invading your neighborhood. We're talking with, with army tanks and soldiers. There would be a few people who uh, jumped outside 
and said, listen, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight to the very end. That's wrong. They're trying to take over our neighborhood. There'd be a lot of people who would stay inside and close the blinds in their windows and just say, you know what, I'm going to try to hopefully let this pass. And then there would be a few detractors. There'd be detractors to say, listen, let them come in. Whatever you do, don't try to fight them. Uh, you know, just, just go along with this. Um, I think it's the reaction to the invasion of a foreign invader. First, the foreign invader was SARS-CoV-2, the infection. And now the invader is the vaccines. The vaccines represent something. Obviously, the vaccines represent something far more than COVID-19 you know, biology. They're symbolic of something. <clears throat> and all the world seems to be rotating about the vaccine. Listen, in Canada, it may be AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and Moderna, but in Indonesia, it's Sinovac. And in Chile, it's, you know, it's a different vaccine. So it's not dependent on a vaccine manufacturer. It's not dependent on, it doesn't even matter if the vaccines work. You know, Sinovac has effectiveness that's never been effective. And yeah. yet everyone's like this tethered to taking one of these vaccines. But you're right. And it seems like there's a, um you know, like a paradigm shift, not just in our thinking about medicine, but you've been talking about this idea, you know, that the American president or that our lawmaker, you know, our lawmakers or our law enforcers could, could force us to do this. That's a paradigm shift, not just in medicine, but in thinking about freedom in a Western democracy. Um, and I think many people feel, I certainly feel like if we lose this battle, we have lost everything that we fought for at least for a couple, you know, a few hundred years in America and a couple hundred years in Canada. And, you know, and if we think about other uh, democracies or other uh, Commonwealth countries or, um, and so it feels like everything is on the line. And if we're wrong about this, what else are we wrong about? I've heard that from so many people that, you know, why is it that people want to hold on to the narrative? Because if they're, you know, if they're wrong in trusting our government now, then their whole belief system falls apart and they have. Well, let's talk about being wrong. Um, I, I've, <laughs> talked to, I've talked to doctors in my circles and every so often, uh, since we're the minority, we ask the question, could we be wrong? Yes. And if we're wrong, what errors have we really made? Mm. Well, on early treatment, uh, if I'm completely wrong, that no treatment works for COVID-19, nothing works. If I'm completely wrong, then I overtreated some patients that I was concerned about using my best judgment, using the best combinations of medicines. I didn't hurt anybody. I know that for sure, but I just wasted an, a treatment effort and it was futile. So that's really the sin that I've committed on early treatment. Now, what about the vaccines? What if I'm wrong in the vaccines? Then I've simply expressed excessive concern over a perfectly safe and effective vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's the only error. Now, what about the other side? What if, what if the other side is wrong? What if COVID-19 was treatable and all those that work to suppress treatment are actually responsible and contributed to the deaths of millions and millions of people worldwide? And what if the other side is wrong on the vaccines? What if the vaccines actually do cause more death and disability and harm than they, than they have benefit? then the mass vaccination program is contributing to the, already the, the consequences of therapeutic nihilism. So, so the, the, the stakes of being wrong are so much higher on the other side than on my side. Um, you know, the way I look at it is I have relatively little to lose, honestly, from, a, from an intellectual right-wrong perspective. Um, I have relatively little to lose. And I'm, I, I said, I'd love to be proven wrong. But so far, every bit of data that comes in becomes more and more clear that, that the principles of early treatment are real. And this was a treatable illness from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And the more data come in, uh, it's clear that the vaccines are uh, not sufficiently safe for public use. Uh, and they're clearly not effective since uh, patients uh, fully vaccinated are are now the majority of people getting COVID worldwide. That question, you know, asking, asking yourself that question, could I be wrong? What would happen if I was wrong? What's the worst case scenario, the best case scenario? These all seem to be questions that are so important to who we are as moral beings, because they're checks and balances on the harms that we can do to others, aren't they? And it strikes me that it's quite possible that we are living through a tragedy right now, a tragedy in, in the technical sense, the ancient Greek sense, you know, of, of us having 
having uh, sort of individually or, or collectively a character flaw that, that leads the hero to make choices that ultimately bring about our downfall. Um, and I think one of the things I appreciate so much about what you're doing is that you're trying to break, I mean, one of the you know, sort of the classical uh, character flaws that tragic heroes have is a kind of blindness, right? And 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 arrogance. And I think the the questions that you're forcing us to ask, that you're asking us to ask, help us to see through that murkiness and to try not to be guilty of having that kind of blindness, um, and 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 doing harm by having it. You know, I have to ask you, I think you mentioned hope a ways back, but what is it that gives you hope today? Where do you think we're going to be a year from now? And, and what keeps you going through these days that are still fairly uncertain? Yeah, you know, I wanted to pick up before I get to that on the issue of moral hazard, because I was listening carefully oh. to, your, to your words. And, you know, one of the toughest interviews I've ever had was with Hugh Hewitt. He's a radio um, uh, personality in the United States. He's also an attorney. And uh, he had me on and he introduced me and said, I have, you know, he said, I'm Hugh Hewitt. Uh, you know, I strongly believe in the vaccine. Everybody should get the vaccines, but I want to bring on Dr. McCullough. He has a different view. And then he brings me on. And that's kind of how he starts. And he lets, he lets me know he's an attorney. He starts asking me these attorney like questions, you know, on for a national audience. And he goes, Dr. McCullough, if, if my audience listens to you, and somebody doesn't take the vaccine and they get COVID and they die of COVID, he said, that's on you. That's on you. Uh, and, and, you know, he's bringing up the issue of moral hazard. I said, but Hugh, I said, if they listen to you and they take the vaccines, the vaccines are all experimental, they're all research. You've actually, you've actually influenced them to participate in research. And they take the vaccine. Once they take the vaccine, they can't get it out of their body. So what and did fact, you say to that? And then they, in fact, they die of the vaccine, Hugh. Mm. I said, the moral hazard is on you. Listen, if someone passes on the vaccine, you know, they can always, you know, be fastidious and, and not get COVID-19. Uh, they can always seek early treatment. They can always get, you know, lean and fit and survive COVID-19. There's so many ways to, to navigate uh, when you just take your chances without taking the vaccine. But once you've committed to a vaccine, you're, you're being committed to research, but you're also committed to this uh, statistical reality of having a fatal outcome. So I said, listen, the moral hazard, uh, that, that scale tips way more to a moral hazard of trying to force somebody into a vaccine or encourage them or coerce them or pressure them to the vaccine. And then he didn't know what to do with that. Uh, he started to stammer a little bit. And I said, listen, counsel, if this was a court of law, you just would have had a bad day, a bad day in court. And let me tell you what, boy, my my emails lit up after that. You got <laughs> Hugh Hewitt on moral hazard. Uh, and it's true that uh, the bottom line is there is a moral hazard when there's a vaccine and it's a research vaccine and its safety profile is unknown at first. The only thing we can do is make it an offering <clears throat> and carefully explain to people that it has risks and benefits. Under no circumstances can we just say it's safe and effective. Under no circumstances can anyone else tell anybody else to get vaccinated. Uh, we had a CNN correspondence go on Sesame Street and try to seduce children into taking the vaccine without giving risks and benefits. That actually violates law. We have regulatory law that all medicinal products need to be presented with risks and benefits. President Biden, has violated regulatory law by barking a command of telling Americans to get vaccinated. So just to get to your question of who I look for in terms of hope, I have met so many wonderful people on this journey, people with integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt Staver, who's a doctor, but he's also a minister and a lawyer, just argued in the Supreme Court this week. And he sent me a really nice, nice text. What an American patriot fighting for rights. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, who's the cousin of John F. Kennedy, uh, heads the Children's Defense Fund. What a beacon of liberty and freedom he is. Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican from Wisconsin. I will be testifying for Ron Johnson on Monday coming up on January 24th in the Senate building on COVID-19 pandemic response. What an American hero. 
a supporter of doctors. His major theme is let doctors be doctors and let doctors come to the fore and manage through the pandemic. So I think the really bright part of this is I have found wonderful people, yourself included, who are all coming together. I'm just an ordinary doctor, uh, but I've been thrown into this uh, worldwide uh, role that I'm playing. I'm doing the best I can. I'm glad you said that. I I know you have to go that your time is short today, Um, but I'm glad you said that. And I agree with you. It's been amazing. People are working so tirelessly on this, you know, through the night, juggling jobs. They've lost their jobs. They're volunteering on these projects anyway, even though they're they're struggling to make ends meet. I mean, I have a young daughter who I would honestly much rather be spending my days with, you know, and I'm working on all of this because there is no world for her unless we get this fixed. Um, But, you know, it's so interesting. I can't help but think of the metaphor of, of, you know, you put pressure on the coal and you get diamonds out of it. And, And there are so many people, I mean, I've spoken with all over the world who are are fighting this and fighting is such a negative word but you know, were coming together in conversation you and I never would have met or, or chatted uh, if it wasn't for this and you just see people's resilience you talk about moral hazard and I, as you were saying that I was thinking about how you know the moral life is not perfect and we so often have to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty and we do our best my goodness we've got to do our best um, and I think an awful lot of people are doing that these days and our, our, our public health officials and our our leaders are not, they're not doing their best because they're not inviting everyone to the table um, and people who are working an awful lot harder and are much more diligent. Um, and we are not just losing our medical rights and probably our health, but also the foundations of what it means to live peaceably together. And I just cannot thank you enough. I, I can tell uh, how busy you are. You're at the Senate building on Monday, was it? And, and you're just very, very busy. And you and you have a practice as well, I understand. You, you still treat patients. And so the fact that you've taken time out of your day just to have a chat about you know tragedies and disinformation and hope for the future and all of that is very special to me. I feel very honored. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough. That's been a wonderful conversation. It's, it's, it's actually great to meet you. I've followed you uh, oh. uh, as many have, have, have and uh, you're making a big difference. Uh, my wife's parents from Canada are now in my house right here in Texas. We had to pull them out after two years of continuous lockdown and declining oh. health and endless uh, impacts of, of COVID-19 in their life. Their house is still there in Toronto. It's still got all this stuff in it. Uh, you know, we've sold it, but they're never going back. Um, the things have changed, and now's the time to take action with our family members. And we have to take action, I think, as responsible citizens uh, right now. I agree with you. Many of your comments were that the stakes are high. I agree. The historical stakes are high. This is an inflection point in human history. There's no doubt about it. You know, as we are talking, Uh, Three minutes to two on Thursday afternoon, January 20th, I know many families who are fleeing to the border tonight after five so that they can cross without the scrutiny of the public health officials because they're terrified for their children. This is Canada, the country that used to be, well, we've duked it out, haven't we? But Canada or the States, you know, among the freest, most enviable places to live in the world. And now people are desperate. And I can tell you paying large sums of money to get out of here to save their families. Um, So we got to keep working on this. And I thank you so much. Thank you.